The following sermon, entitled Jesus, the only name whereby we must be saved, was preached on the evening of October 23, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this evening to the book of Acts. This evening we will read from chapters 3 and 4. We will read the first 16 verses of chapter 3, and then the first 12 verses of chapter 4. And we do this in connection with Lord's Day 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms, And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately... His feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed, held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified His Son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied Him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let Him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And His name through faith in His name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now let's move ahead to chapter 4. Here we'll read the first 12 verses. Peter has explained the miracle to the astonished onlookers, and now he'll explain it to the religious leaders. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through 
Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. It came to pass on the morning, on the morrow, that their rulers and elders and scribes, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We end our Scripture reading at that point. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 11. Lord's Day 11 in the back of our songbooks on page 8. Why is the Son of God called Jesus that is a Savior? Because He saveth us and deliver us from our sins, and likewise because we ought not to seek, neither can find salvation in any other. Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints, of themselves, or anywhere else? They do not. For though they boast of Him in words, Yet in deeds they deny Jesus the only Deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true. Either that Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in Him necessary to their salvation. With Lord's Day 11, we begin the Catechism's treatment of God the Son. That's the notice given at the top of the page in our Psalters. The heading immediately before Lord's Day 11 is of God the Son. And that heading helps orient us as to where we are in the Catechism. It's a reminder to us that we are currently going through the Catechism's explanation of the Apostles' Creed as it takes each phrase of the Apostles' Creed and explains the meaning of it. And this heading also reminds us that the Catechism recognizes that the Apostles' Creed can be divided into three sections. The first concerning God the Father and our creation. The second concerning God the Son and our redemption. And the third concerning God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. And with this notice at the top of the page above Lord's Day 11 of God the Son, we're being reminded that we've now finished that first part of the Apostles' Creed of God the Father and our creation. That was Lord's Day's 
9 and 10. And now we are moving into the section on God the Son. Which means we are moving into one of the richest sections of the entire Heidelberg Catechism. For in these Lord's days, 11 through 9, we have, as it were, the Catechism's chapter on Christology, the study of Jesus Christ. That's what we begin tonight. And as we begin this section spanning from Lord's Days 11 through 19, it's worth giving a, a brief overview of what's to come because this subsection on God the Son can itself be broken up into two different subsections so that the first couple of Lord's Days, specifically 11 through 14, focus on the person Jesus Christ. That is, it teaches us his names and thereby reveals to us our Savior. In addition, it will talk about his natures, the fact that he's both truly God and truly man at the same time. That's Lord's Days 11 through 14. Having explained the person Jesus Christ, the Catechism then focuses on the work of our Savior in Lord's Days 15 through 19. Both his work that he performed on this earth which work culminated in His death at Calvary, but then also His work as the risen and ascended Lord of heaven and earth. That's 15-19. through Lord's Day 11 stands at the head of all this. And it's appropriate that it does because Lord's Day 11 is really foundational for everything that follows. Because in Lord's Day 11, we consider that most familiar and most basic name of our Mediator, the name Jesus. And in considering that name, we learn arguably the most important truths about our Savior. We're taught His fundamental work that He came to save His people from their sins. We're even given a hint at to who this Savior is. He's God Himself in human flesh. And in doing this, we're laying the groundwork for everything that follows in Lord's Days 11-19. through And what is more, at the very outset, we are taught the important truth that this Savior, Jesus, is the only Savior from sin. There is no other. Or to use the language of the passage we read, there's no other name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. And so, with it, so it is with that in mind that we consider Lord's Day 11 tonight using as our theme, Jesus, the only name whereby we must be saved. First, we're going to see He is a complete Savior. Second, we're going to see He is the only Savior. And then third, the calling to receive Him. As we read through Acts 3 and 4, were you at all struck by how many times Simon Peter spoke of the name of Jesus Christ? Notice that with me for a moment. When he heals the man in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, 
Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then in chapter 3, verse 16, when he explains this miracle to the astonished crowd, he says in chapter 3, verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong. And then the same explanation is given to the religious leaders in chapter 4, verse 10. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised up from the dead, even by Him doth this man stand here before you whole. And then he repeats it one more time in the verse that's really the the climax of this section. Chapter 4, verse 12 where he says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And as we read this, we wonder what is going on here? Why does he keep referring to the name of Jesus Christ again and again? Why does he not just say, well, it was Jesus Christ who's in heaven who healed him? Why does he say instead, the name of Christ healed him? Well, by speaking this way, Simon Peter is not in any way denying that it is Jesus Christ who healed this man, nor is he teaching that the name of Jesus is to be understood as some sort of magic spell or magic formula like saying hocus pocus or abracadabra or whatever it may be, and that the name of Jesus is not such a magic formula will become very clear later on in the book of Acts when the seven sons of Sceva try to use it that way to cast out a demon. They learn the hard way. This name is not just some magic spell. So those are not the reasons why he keeps referring to the name of Jesus Christ. But instead, he does so because there exists the po- closest possible connection between Jesus Christ Himself and His name. For the reality is that His name is a revelation of who our Savior is. You see, the name of Jesus Christ is not like our names. Our names function as identifiers. They distinguish us from one person. They distinguish one person from another. But the the names of our mediator reveal to us who He is. They they tell us about His being, His character, so that we come to know Him through His names. And understand that these names that were given that reveal to us our Savior are not just telling us some abstract truths about Him, things that are really uh, random facts, but the names tell us the most important things there are to know about Him. They're telling us the essential characteristics of our Savior. And it's for that reason that we then know Him by means of His name. It's by His name that we apprehend Christ. It's by His name that we come to embrace our Savior with a true faith. So that's the significance the name of our Savior. But now we want to consider, well, what then does this particular name, Jesus, reveal about our Savior? What does it tell us? And I trust most of you already know that 
the meaning of this name is Jehovah salvation or Jehovah is salvation. For the name Jesus, as we have it in the English language, is derived from the Greek, which is really derived from the Hebrew, which takes two words and smashes them together. The word Jehovah and the word salvation. Jehovah is salvation. And thankfully, we can sort of still see that even in the English language in that the first two letters, the J-E, is clearly the abbreviated form of Jehovah. And then the S-U-S is pointing us to the salvation because that comes from the Greek word to save. So the meaning of the name is Jehovah salvation or Jehovah is salvation. And recognize this is revealing some of the most important truths there are about our Savior. It's telling us about Him. Namely, that His fundamental work is to save us. So that even as Joshua in the Old Testament, whose name has the same meaning, Jehovah, salvation, even as he was used of God to deliver the people of Israel from their misery in the wilderness, bringing them into the promised land, conquering their enemies. So this Jesus, whose name means the same as Joshua, His fundamental work is going to be that He saves us. That He he accomplishes a great deliverance. And in fact, that's what the angel announced about Him when He announced His birth. He, He told Joseph, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. It's telling us this is going to be His great work. So it tells us about His work, but it also hints at His identity, His person, and that it hints at the truth that He is God. And I say hints at because the name Jesus by itself does not clinch that He is indeed divine. There are other things that will prove that more fully. For after all, Joshua had the same name in the, whole, in the Old Testament, but he was not divine. But unlike Joshua, when that name is applied to Jesus of Nazareth, it is revealing the truth, reminding us the truth, that it's not just Jehovah is going to accomplish His salvation in and through Him, but that He Himself is Jehovah. He Himself would claim this when, for example, He would tell others before Abraham was, I am, and I am being the the meaning, the significance of that name Jehovah. He is God. So that we see the name Jesus is teaching us some of the most fundamental, essential truths about our Savior. But now all of that raises the question, what kind of a Savior are we talking about? From what does He save us? And the answer of Scripture is from our sins. That's the truth revealed in Matthew 1, verse 21. And the last part, He shall save His people from their sins. Those last three words are so crucially important because they're telling us the kind of Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. Christ in the Catechism, drawing from Scripture, teaches that same truth in question and answer 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, a Savior? 
because He saveth us and deliver us from our sins. And now it's important that we establish this because there, this runs contrary to the thinking and teaching of many others who go by the name Christian. There are others who present His saving work in a very different way. Who would say, for example, that this Jesus came to save us physically from our afflictions, from our injuries, from our diseases. Because after all, is that not what He does in Acts chapter 3 and 4? And all of the miracles of healing that He performed during His lifetime, this was a lame man that we're talking about. Someone who could not walk and the miracles that He's enabled to walk. And so, that's teaching us, they would say, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can rightly expect that God will heal you of your physical infirmity. That He will restore your health where it's lacking. Or, they would say, He came to take care of poverty. Because after all, this man in Acts chapter 3 is a beggar. He's outside the temple crying out for alms. And did not Jesus say, blessed are the poor? They conveniently leave out the rest of that sentence. And thus, He came to, to make you wealthy. He came to raise you up out of your poverty, they would say. And yes, there are people who actually teach this. People who actually believe this. I'm not making this up. And even if they would not put it quite as strong as others, nevertheless, much of the church world makes Jesus out to be the friend of wretched people in general or the, the helper and comforter of those who are afflicted for whatever reason. But you see, if Jesus came to save us from our physical afflictions, from our poverty, or other such evils, He would not be the Savior we truly need. Because even if I broke both of my legs tonight, my great misery would not be that I would be unable to get from point A to point B anymore by myself. But my great misery is that I'm spiritually lame. That I cannot walk, therefore, in the paths of righteousness. I cannot keep God's commandments. And because I cannot keep God's commandments, I do not have the right to life. And what is worse, I deserve punishment for my failure to walk according to those, stand, those commandments. That's my misery. And so too with the other example that even if I did not have a single penny to my name, even if I owed a, a debt of a billion dollars to some other man, my greatest need is not money, wealth, but my greatest need is that I'm a, a spiritual beggar. That I have nothing at all that I can give to my God to be received back into His favor. So that what we need as sinners 
is not health. It's not wealth. But we need someone to deliver us from our our spiritual diseases. We need someone to, to address our spiritual poverty. And is that not what the catechism taught us already? In Lord's Days 2 through 4? What is your misery? It's that I'm a sinner. And that on account of my sin, I deserve punishment to die spiritually, to die physically. And while those other things, physical afflictions, poverty, those are real trials. They are not the fundamental problem. And thus, if Jesus came to save us simply from those other things, He's not the Savior we truly need. And thus, praise be to God that He is Jehovah Salvation who came to save us from our sin because, he's the, the, because He is therefore Exactly the one that we need. And as for the miracles, they are meant to point us to this spiritual reality. That's evident when we look at the the miracles of our Savior Jesus Christ. When we look at Him performing a similar miracle, healing another lame man who was lowered down through the roof to Him. What does He do first for that man? Before He ever says to him, arise, take up your bed and walk, He says to him, first, your sins are forgiven. And He's starting with the the fundamental thing, the main thing, and the miracle that follows is a picture of what had already taken place from a spiritual point of view. And so it is with all of the miracles of our Savior and the miracles He performs in and through the apostles, they're they're pictures that that teach us about our spiritual deliverance so that here when we have the healing of a layman, it's reminding us that by nature we are wholly incapable of walking according to God's commandments. To walking in the paths of righteousness. But when He saves us by His grace, he, He restores our spiritual ankles and feet and legs again so that by His grace, we're able to make a small beginning in that Christian walk. So Jesus Christ is our Savior and He saves us from our sin. Now very importantly, He does this work perfectly for He is a complete Savior. Thus far in this first point, we've emphasized and seen the truth that He is Savior, Jehovah's salvation. But now we want to do justice to that adjective we have out in front of this first point. He is a complete Savior. And that's what the catechism teaches us in the second half of answer 30. Second half of answer 30, we read, for one of these two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in Him necessary to their salvation. And we know from Scripture which of the two is true. The second one that 
Everything we need for salvation is to be found in Him, which is to say, He is a complete Savior. And there are a number of different ways in which that is true. To give one example, He is a complete Savior because He delivers us from both the guilt of sin as well as the punishment we deserve for it. He delivers us from the the guilt of our sin. That's a part of the context. Chapter 3, verse 19, we did not read it, but in chapter 3, verse 19, we read, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Blotted out. That is, erased. Done away with. Obliterated. They're gone. The guilt of sin is addressed. And because the guilt of a sin is addressed, the the punishment falls away because the legal basis for the punishment is the the guilt of sin. And once the the root problem has been taken care of, the punishment falls away. He delivers us from both. He's a complete Savior. He's a complete Savior because, to give another example, He saves us not only from the guilt of sin, but also the the power of sin, the corruption of sin. And that's what comes out here in this particular miracle. We already noted that this is pointing us to the truth that our Savior takes us who were spiritually lame and enables us by His grace and Spirit to begin to walk in His commandments. What stands behind that is His regenerating work and His delivering us not just from the guilt of our sin, but from the power of our sin, the corruption of our sin, so that again we see He is a complete Savior. He's a complete Savior to give another example because He not only delivers us from sin, but He also gives unto us eternal life and all of the the blessings of salvation. There's both the the negative and the positive. Negatively, he, He rescues us from that greatest imaginable evil And positively, He bestows upon us the greatest imaginable, the greatest possible good. Because He he does both. He is therefore a complete Savior. And these are just a, a handful of examples. We could give many others all highlighting, all illustrating the truth that all things necessary for salvation are found in Jesus Christ. And that's true because He both accomplishes our salvation and applies that salvation. Or to use the language of Zacharias or Sinus, one of the two authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, Jesus saves us by His merit and by His efficacy. He saves us by His merit. That is, He's earned salvation for us. He's accomplished our salvation. For by living a perfect life, by going to the cross of Calvary, doing all that the Father commanded Him, He he merited all the blessings of salvation. So that those blessings that have their source in the Father were given to the Son. He procured them so that they're now stored up in the Son as a treasury and thus His to give. But the main thing is, He earned them. But now He not only earned them, He not only merited them, but He also effectually or efficaciously applies them. Saves us by His efficacy in that 
Jesus Christ didn't earn all those blessings just to, to hoard them, keep them to, to Himself. But He earned them with a view to bestowing them, to, with a view to giving them to His people. He does that through His Spirit. In many ways, the Spirit stands on the foreground in the application, but it's still Jesus Christ the one who's sending the Spirit to deliver those. And because He saves us both in accomplishing our salvation and applying our salvation by His merit and by His efficacy, all that is to say, He is a complete Savior. He does not leave any part of our salvation undone. He never fails to complete the work that He started. Instead, He saves us to the uttermost, delivering us from our sin and misery and blessing us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He's a complete Savior. And now because He is complete, He is therefore the only Savior. And that's what we want to look at in the second place. The fact that He is our only Savior. And this is a truth the Catechism emphasizes throughout the Lord's Day. Both question and answers. For example, in the second half of answer 29, we read, because we ought not to seek, neither can find salvation in any other. And that's really the main point of question and answer 30. Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints of themselves or anywhere else, they do not. For though they boast of Him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only Deliverer and Savior. Catechism emphasizes this truth. And it does so because of the temptation to look for salvation or a part of our salvation from someone other than Jesus Christ. In fact, the catechism brings up the, the two different places we would be most tempted to turn to in the language of question 30. Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints or of themselves or anywhere else? The, the two options are of some other saint or of ourselves. And we'll look at each in turn. First, there's a temptation to look to other saints. Now, when the catechism speaks of other saints, it's, it has its eye on the Roman Catholic Church and their teaching that in the history of the church, there have been certain individuals who were so holy that they went above and beyond what God required. That is, to use the technical term, they performed works of supererogation. They went above and beyond what was required. And because they went above and beyond, those can be all gathered together into this treasury of merit that can then be applied to the repentant sinner. So that what the Roman Catholic Church teaches is that a part of the obedience then that gets you to heaven can come from these other saints and thus the Roman Catholic Church was teaching their people to seek their salvation in someone other than Jesus. But we ought not do that. 
And we ought not, in light of the testimony of the passage that we read, for consider what Simon Peter would have to say to something like this. And he's relevant because of the high esteem that the Roman Catholic Church has of Simon Peter, of St. Peter. What does he say to this? What did he say when the people gathered around him with eyes of astonishment, supposing he himself had healed this lame man? Well, that's Acts 3, verse 12. And when Peter saw it, that is, this multitude greatly wondering at him, when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk? And then he goes on to give the positive. It was by the name of Jesus Christ this man was healed. Not by any power or holiness in us. And in this verse we're being taught, do not look to some other saint. Now admittedly, I doubt there are any here, I trust there are not any here who would look to the saints that the Roman Catholic Church has canonized and expect some of their good works to be added to our account. But though that's true, there's still a warning for us. A reminder for us that it's not the church that saves us. Nor is it our parents who save us. It's not the preacher who saves us or any other office bearer. There's no other person other than Jesus who can save us. Yes, as we saw this morning, God uses means, He uses instruments, but that's different than imagining some other saint performs a part of the work of saving us. We must not ever become guilty of looking to other saints. Nor should we ever look to ourselves. And that's the second danger, the second temptation. Not to other saints, nor to ourselves. And again, there's a a danger here. Really, here lies the greater temptation for us. For is it not true today What was true in the day of Jesus Christ when He said in Luke 18, verse 9, there are many who trust in themselves that they are righteous. And in subtle ways, we can be guilty of that very thing. Sometimes we trust that we are of ourselves righteous on account of our church membership. So that we begin to think like the Jews in Jesus' day. Because I belong to the church, therefore on that basis I am a child of God. Or, we begin to trust that we are righteous in ourselves on account of our deeds, on account of our works. So that we start to imagine that my works are are surely part of the reason for my salvation. Surely they're like a spiritual currency. I, I give my work and then he, he responds by giving me a blessing. And we start to think, well, I've been a pretty good person of late. 
And therefore, it would only make sense that God would lavish upon me all the blessings of salvation. Or, we begin to trust that we are righteous in ourselves on account of our repentance. Because I'm so sorry for what I did, because I'm sorry enough, therefore, surely God's grace, His favor will return upon me. He'll cause His face to shine upon me because I'm sorry. So that we make our sorrow, our repentance, the, the hinge upon which these blessings flow to us again. Or we do it with our suffering. Been through a lot lately. There's been many trials and so God really owes it to me to give me a season of prosperity. I've done the adversity. He owes it to me because of my suffering to bless me now. And now what makes this especially dangerous is that there are false teachers out there who promote this very thinking. Who would have us to trust in ourselves that we are righteous. It was true in Peter's day. Remember who he's talking to in Acts chapter 4, he's talking to the religious leaders who were teaching the people you got to do good so that you can earn salvation, so that you can earn life with God. And those false teachers are still around today. And that false teaching, it, it's appealing to that old man of sin. Our old man of sin wants to think that it can contribute something to our salvation. But the teaching of Scripture, the teaching of our Reformed confessions is we cannot save ourselves. We cannot contribute in the smallest way to our salvation. That's what Lord's Day 5 taught us. If you're going to be saved, you have to make satisfaction of God's justice. And the, the next question and answer was, can we make it ourselves? No. Because we only add to the debt every single day. We cannot save ourselves. Because there's one, only, Savior. Jesus Christ. And that's the truth that's stated so clearly in Acts 4, verse 12. Acts 4, verse 12, we read this. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter says this in response to the question, by what power in whose name did you heal this man? That was the question back in verse 7. And when they had set them, the disciples, in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have ye done this? And Simon Peter gives a very direct answer to that question. Verses 8 and 9. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole? Now verse 10 is really the answer. Be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by Him 
doth this man stand here before you whole? It was Jesus Christ who healed him. That man that you crucified. That man you thought you had finally gotten rid of. He's risen from the dead. And the fact that you see this man who we all knew was lame, but now has been healed, there's no one who can deny it, is proof that He is risen. That one you put to death, He's alive again. and he, He's reigning over all. It was by His name that this man was healed. And therefore, it's by His name that we are healed from the far greater disease, our spiritual disease of sin. That's the point. That's the connection. He healed this man. And now, if you would be saved, you need to look to this Jesus of Nazareth. So that what He says in verses 8-11 through flows into verse 12. It culminates in verse 12 when He adds, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Simon Peter is emphasizing there's no one else. That comes out in the word order. That's somewhat reflected here, but is even stronger in the original Greek. The emphasis is all on that word not, translated as neither at the beginning, so that the word order in the Greek is not is there in another one salvation. There's no one else. And then he strengthens that by adding the rest of the verse, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You could search the whole earth. Go to the remotest regions that you can find. You can span every age of the history of this world. You will not find another Savior. Because there's only one. That's the truth being taught here. And now by emphasizing this, we're certainly not excluding the Father and the Spirit. For the testimony of Scripture is that it's the triune God who saves us. When we say there's only one Savior. We're excluding all creatures, whether they be men, whether they be animals, whether they be angels, whatever it may be. But we're not excluding the Father nor the Spirit. It's the triune God who saves us. But even then, we have to recognize the centrality of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in that work. For when we speak of the Father's role in saving us, Yes, He's the source of our salvation, but He saves us in and through Jesus Christ. He saves us by sending His Son into this world to accomplish our salvation. And when we speak of the the Spirit's role in our salvation, yes, He applies our salvation. He's the immediate agent of our salvation. But He's applying the blessings that Christ Himself earned. And He's doing so on behalf of Jesus Christ as the the one sent by Jesus Christ as the Spirit of Christ. So yes, the triune God saves us. But even as we talk about the role of the Father or the role of the Spirit, we may never disconnect that from 
the one who is Jehovah, salvation, Jesus of Nazareth. So we've seen He's a complete Savior. And what logically follows from that is that He is therefore the only Savior. And what logically follows from that is that if you would be saved, you must believe in Him. You must receive Him. And that's what we want to conclude tonight's sermon with. Receiving Him by a true faith. That's the calling that's clearly implied in this verse we've been focusing on at the end. Chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The, the clear implication is believe on Him. Or to use the language of the catechism, or to receive Him. That's the language at the very end of question and answer 30. Or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in Him necessary to their salvation. And notice the necessity of this. Notice that from that little word in Acts 4, verse 12. Must. He could have said, whereby we may be saved, whereby it's possible to be saved, but he says, by inspiration, whereby we must be saved. And on the one hand, what's being communicated there that it is that if you desire salvation, you must go to Jesus Christ because there is no other option. And on the other hand, what's being communicated by that word must is the calling that's presented here. The, the moral obligation. The Gospel commands Believe in Jesus Christ. So much so that a refusal to believe is called in Scripture disobedience to the Gospel. Calling is to believe in Him. To receive Him. And to believe in Him alone for salvation. Because He's the only Savior. And that's what question and answer 30 reminds us of when it says, do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints, of themselves, or anywhere else? The answer is they do not. For though they boast of Him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only Deliverer and Savior. What it's saying is, though someone may have a lot to say about Jesus Christ, it, they may profess that they believe in Him. If in their heart they actually truly believe that their salvation is based on something more than Jesus Christ and His righteousness, then they do not actually believe. And now that may sound harsh. That might sound judgmental to some, but it's the teaching of Acts 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other salvation under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And thus the calling is believe Him. Receive Him. And the encouragement to do so 
is what we've already talked about. He is a complete Savior. His name is Jehovah's salvation. He is able to save us from our sins. There's no sin that's too great. There's no case of spiritual disease that's too difficult for Him. If you go to a doctor with some disease, some ailment, some injury, you might be told, I cannot help you with this. If you had come to me with some other problem, some other injury, some other disease, I could have helped you there, but this, I don't, I don't deal with this. Or you might hear from a doctor, well, the cancer has spread too far. The infection has progressed too far. The, the injury is too great. And we cannot help you. If you'd come to us earlier, before it had gotten this bad, then we could have helped you. But at this point, there's nothing more we can do. This, this is too difficult for me. You might hear that from a doctor. But child of God, you will never hear that from the great physician, Jesus Christ. Never when we go to Him by a true faith does He say to us, I cannot help you with this. I can heal spiritually lame people, but those who are spiritually blind, that's, that's not my specialty. Nor can I handle the, the spiritually deaf and dumb. And I certainly can't help anyone who's spiritually dead. He doesn't say that. Nor does He say that it's progressed too far. You're so ensnared in the sin. If you'd come earlier, then I could have forgiven you. Then I could have sanctified you. But this is too much. It's too difficult. He does not say that. Because His name is Jesus. Jehovah salvation. He's able to save. And therefore, do not imagine in your heart my sin is too great. That's not humility. That's pride. Because we're talking about the One whose name is Jehovah Salvation. His name is not Jehovah who tries to save, who who makes a good effort to save. His, His name is not Jehovah who saves from some sins, but His name is Jesus because He shall save His people from their sin. He's able to do it. Whatever sin you have in your heart and life, whatever it may be, He's able to address it. And He's willing for the promises of the Gospels that whosoever believeth in Him shall have life. Never does Jesus Christ turn away a repentant sinner who comes to Him in true faith crying out, Lord, have mercy on me for I'm a sinner. 
So believe in Him. Receive Him. And find thereby that all things necessary for your salvation truly are in Him. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee that the name Jesus has been declared to us this night. Work faith in the hearts of any here who do not yet believe in Jesus Christ. And strengthen the faith of those who do believe so that whatever sin we have in our hearts and lives, we trust that it is forgiven for Jesus' sake and that He is able to heal us. To deliver us from the power of it. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.